Heavenly Father, we do thank you for placing in each one of our hearts, the hearts of your children, a desire for you, a desire that you would return and establish your kingdom and reign in justice. And may that desire drive us into your word this morning with understanding, applying it to our hearts. In your name we pray. Amen. Ecclesiastes chapter 8 this morning. If you're in first through third grade, you can slip out to our children's church at this time. I'd like to ask uh, your forgiveness for my voice this morning. We like to share everything in our household, and so we are currently sharing a cold that's been going around for about a week and a half, and I have gotten that, and so uh, I have a bottle of water with me. I have loosened my tie. You know, some people say shirts and ties aren't mentioned in the Bible. Actually, they are. In Revelation, there's something called the abomination of desolation, and that's reference to the necktie that was invented by men so many years ago, and so... Uh, I have attempted to do everything to free up my voice this morning. I have a cough drop at the ready, but uh, we're going to pray that that would not be a distraction to the Word of God and thankful that the power of the Word lies in the power of the Holy Spirit using His Word in the hearts of His people, not in the power of the one presenting the Word, and so that gives us great comfort this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 8, God's people have cast off the works of darkness and the light of the gospel, the light of the Holy Spirit is now present in their lives. There is the folly of the world, the foolishness of the world, and the wisdom of God. And at the moment of salvation, the wisdom of God, the very life of God, is planted in the life of the believer And so the life that is lived, Paul would say, is not my life, but the life of Christ lived through me. And so therefore, the responsibility of the Christian is to cooperate with the Spirit of God, to cooperate with the life of God, and laying off sin and saying yes to Jesus, and cooperating with the Spirit of God and the life of God lived out. And that is pictured in in many different ways. It's illustrated in many different ways in our scriptures. This morning in Ecclesiastes chapter 8, we see a comparison contrast statement, an illustration that's actually beginning back in chapter 7 and verse 23 and continues with wisdom and folly. When you see wisdom and folly, given to us in this passage, I'd like you to recognize that this is God's supernatural wisdom lived through the life of the believer, God's life lived out in us in contrast to the life of darkness, the life of foolishness. You saw that reflected in our scripture reading this morning where it says, the fool says in his heart there is no God. And the wise person would then identify that God correctly and align his life underneath God. Your Christian life is all about you remembering who God is and living according to the God that you remember. So you can choose to live your life as a foolish person. You could choose to live your life in an ungodly way. You could choose to live your life as though God has no bearing on your life. Or you can choose to live in wisdom. The way the sinner is hard, the way the transgressor brings punishment. The way of wisdom 
brings blessing from God and a life of joy and satisfaction. I say all that to remind you what the book of Ecclesiastes it's about, is about. It's a book of wisdom written by either Solomon or someone from the viewpoint of Solomon. You can choose, okay? I have my opinion, you can have your opinion. At the end of the day, it doesn't really matter because it's inspired scripture, and so whether it's Solomon writing this, who I believe it was, it's my opinion, or it's someone else writing from the viewpoint of Solomon, either way, they're writing under the inspiration of God, and what's given to us is an incredible book of wisdom that outlines for us how we should live, you see the phrase over and over again, under the sun. That means on this earth. Every time you see the phrase under the sun, we'll see it in our passage this morning, you should be reminded that he's writing that you should, write, you should live from this perspective as you live under the sun, as you live in this world. Sometimes he uses it to reference when we live in this world, this is what it looks like, this is our perception of things, but it's life under the sun. And then there's a very specific word that is used throughout the book the most commonly repeated word throughout the book, and it's the word vanity. It's translated in your scriptures as vanity. So from our perspective, life is but, Hebrew word, havel. It's, 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 a, it's a breath. Life is but a vapor, as James would say. That life is real and life is important, but it is short. And when you're young, it seems like life will go on forever. And you blink, and you're halfway through your life, and then from the testimony of others, you can blink at the end of your life and say, where did it all go? I feel like I'm 20, but I look in the mirror, and I don't recognize the person looking back at me anymore. Life, this life that's a breath, has gone by so quickly. So the book of Ecclesiastes says, listen, life is havel. One of, the, one of the dangers that you can read into this passage is to see that word vanity and to translate it, which would, I believe would be a wrong translation. It's, uh, one of the modern translations chooses it as this, and to translate this as meaningless. Life is not meaningless, friends, if you're living as a Christian. But it is transient. It is a, 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 a breath. It's here and it's gone. And so when we look at this passage, we will see both the word vanity, breath, havel, and under the sun from the perspective of life here on this earth. So as we look at chapter 8, let's, let's begin reading in chapter 7, verse 23. Look down your scriptures with me. Chapter 7 and verse 23. We're going to use this kind of like a runway, if you can imagine that. A runway as we take off into chapter 8, chapter 7 and verse 23 and 24. All this I've tested by wisdom. There's our word, there's our key. I said, I will be wise, but it was far from me, that which has been afar off and deep, very deep. Who can find it out? I turn my heart to know and to search out and to seek wisdom in the scheme of things and to know the wickedness of folly and the foolishness that is madness. And then in verses 26 through 29, Solomon gives us two pictures of wisdom and folly as two women living in this world. One is wisdom, one is folly. Both are calling out to you in the streets. If you've ever read Proverbs chapters 1 through 9, you see these illustrations of wisdom and folly. I'll give you a hint. Proverbs 7, 8, and 9 is not just about purity, okay? 
it's an illustration of wisdom calling out in the street and folly calling out foolishness and the allure that foolishness has, especially for young people. One of the worst questions you can ask a teenager is, why did you do that? Because the answer is going to be what? I don't know. Why? Why? Why would you do that? I don't know. Because foolishness is calling in the streets. Wisdom is calling as well. So the call in Ecclesiastes chapter 8 is that we would heed God's wisdom. Let's read chapter 8 and verse 1 together. In fact, let's read all of chapter 8. Who is like the wise and who knows the interpretation of a thing? A man's wisdom makes his face shine and the hardness of his face is changed. The aspects of wisdom he's dealing with. Verse 2. I say, keep the king's command because of God's oath to him. Be not hasty to go from his presence. Do not take your stand in an evil cause, for he does whatever he pleases. For the word of the king is supreme. Who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command will know no evil thing. And the wise heart will know the proper time in the just way. For there is a time and a way for everything. Although man's trouble lies heavy on him, for he does not know what is to be. For who can tell him how it will be? No man has power to retain the spirit or power over the day of death. There is no discharge from war, nor will wickedness deliver those who are given to it. All this I observe while applying my heart to all that is done. There's our phrase, under the sun, when man had power over man to his hurt. That's our key there in verse 9 to understand the passage. All this I observed when man had power over man to his hurt. Message today is wisdom in the midst of the contradiction between the suffering of the godly and the affluence of the wicked. That he says, under the sun, I observed this in this time when uh, the, w- the wicked were in the, uh, uh, being the oppressors and the righteous were being oppressed. In this time where man had power over man to his hurt. The oppression. The oppression of the righteous. How are we to operate our lives? Friends, today is the day when wickedness is hailed as how you are supposed to live your life. And righteousness is oppressed. How are we to operate our lives in a culture such as this? That's the question that Solomon gives us in chapter 8, and we'll find the answer through this passage. Let's pray for God's illuminating power. God, would you illumine our hearts to see truth from your word? Would you remove distractions? Would you help us to be able to understand your truth so that we may believe it, and by believing it, live by it? In your name, amen. How do I operate my life when I see the world around me and it's different than I think it should be or I thought it would be? How do I operate my life? There are some who believe that those who do right have an easy life 
and God blesses them and gives them good things. And those who do wrong have a hard life. God takes away blessings from them. And so there are some who would wrongly believe that when you do what is right, you will get good things, and when you do what is wrong, you will get bad things. We would call that false doctrine. We would call that the prosperity gospel. Those who believe that need to go back into the first century and talk to Stephen, who was martyred and stoned for the gospel's sake. They need to talk to Paul and Silas, who were beaten and set in prison for the gospel's sake. All of the apostles martyred in the first century. This was the terrible mistake that Job's friends made. Do you remember the story of Job? Reading through the Bible chronologically this year, and I encourage you to do that as well, and right in the middle of the book of Job. And uh, Job's friends, they say, Job, just confess your sin, and God will bless you again. Obviously, you did something wrong, because you lost everything and you lost your health. So obviously, you did something wrong, and God is punishing you. I mean, that's obvious. So if you just confess and get everything right, God will give you good things again. And Job says, you guys don't even understand life. That's not how God works. Don't make that same mistake. And so we must be careful not to buy into any sort of prosperity gospel. And if you have, this chapter will be an antidote for that for you this morning. In fact, the passage before us this morning reveals to us a contrast between viewing life from God's point of view, that would be wisdom, and viewing life from man's point of view, that would be folly. This chapter does that so that you and I may choose to live in wisdom during our few days under the earth. Or excuse me, a few days on the earth. I've I've taken some medication, and so you may have to translate some things that I say. My wife is not here. Normally she sits right down front where I can turn and look and she can do the... Please restate that face. I'm going to try that again. This chapter is given to us so that we can live in wisdom in our few days under the sun, in our few days on this earth. Friend, your days are numbered and they are few. This passage gives us four aspects of wisdom that we should live in. Number one, wisdom aligns under authority appropriately. Very practically. Remember, Ecclesiastes is such an earthy book. It, it's, it's like it was written yesterday. And, and Solomon says, in this very practical ways, he's giving these practical proverbial statements. He says, you need to align under authority appropriately. Verses 1 through 5. Solomon does not give any qualification whether the authority in your life is an oppressive authority or a benevolent authority. Maybe you bought into the lie that I will respect my boss when he earns my respect. I will obey him when he treats me right. I'll do what he says, but I'm not going to do it in a kind way. And until he gets his act together, I don't have to get my act together. And Solomon is blowing that out of the water when he says, listen, this is how... It operates under oppression. This is how you're supposed to operate your life under oppression, in wisdom. And we could go through these verses in detail for the sake of time. We'll just look at the details of verse 4. And he gives us three specific ways. Practical, wisdom, and insight. For the word of the king is supreme, and who may say to him, what are you doing? Whoever keeps a command, verse 5, which is 4 and 5 what we look at, 
will know no evil thing. First of all, aligning under authority appropriately means that to the authorities in your life, you need to obey and follow directions. Align under the authorities in your life with a right attitude. The only reason while you would be, when you would be excused from submitting to authorities in your life is if that authority has asked you to do something unbiblical. That means that it falls under the category of immoral, illegal, or unethical. Other than that, you are called to submit to the authorities in your life. Secondly, to know the proper time to make an appeal. To know the proper time to make an appeal. The wise heart will know the proper time. This may be the proper time to change jobs. This may be the proper time to approach your supervisor, your boss, whatever it may be. This phrase is very practically reminding you that in conversations with people, timing is very important. And so the authorities in your life know the proper time. Monday morning is usually not a very good time, first thing, to deal with issues like that when everybody's coming back to work. Number three, in your work, show justice and integrity. How do you live in wisdom under the sun, friend? In your work, show justice and integrity. The wise heart, verse five, will know, the last three words, the just way. Justice and integrity. Be known in your workplace as the person who does what is right even when no one is looking. Friend, in a culture of increased laziness and immorality, you can have a testimony for Christ simply by doing the following things. Show up for work early, submit to your authority kindly, and work with integrity. You do those three things, and people are going to look at you and say, what's different about you? There's something about you that's different than everyone else. You're actually here on time. You don't try to say you punched in early when you didn't. You show up early so you're actually ready to work when you're on the clock. You deal with integrity. You sweetly submit to authority in your life. What's different about you? And you can put a name to the difference. The name is Jesus. Wisdom aligns under authority appropriately, especially when that authority is oppressive. There's no one who needs someone sweetly submitting to them than one who is running from God or one who is unsaved. Secondly, wisdom accepts our fragile human condition. Look at verses 6 through 9. Wisdom accepts our fragile human condition. When was the last time you were struck with your own vulnerability? Do you know why so many were open to the gospel during the COVID crisis? Because a virus had the entire world humbled and on its knees. And and whether, whatever your take would be on the COVID crisis, the truth was everyone felt more vulnerable than normal. And when people are vulnerable, they start asking questions. Questions about what happens. I never thought I would die, and then all of a sudden... I I feel vulnerable what happens next and people's hearts are open to the gospel. Friend, when was the last time that you were struck with your vulnerability? This is the trouble, look at verse 6, the trouble that lies heavy on him. That you and I, at any point in time, 
are just one heartbeat away from heaven. That the, the operations of your body that keeps you going, you have no control over. The natural breathing and the, the rhythm of your, heart, your heartbeat or the activity in your brain, it's all just one step away from eternity. What are the two aspects that Solomon gives us to help us understand our fragile human condition? Well, number one, you have absolutely no knowledge of the future. You may think you know what's going to happen, but you don't. We had a plan for Christmas Day. We were going to have a beautiful time together early in the morning with a family opening gifts and the gifts that we didn't open on Christmas Eve, and then we're going to get ready and prayerfully come into our church gathering and as a church family gather around Christmas. And then a blizzard came, right? But some of us, it didn't affect us too much, and so we still gathered together, and then we're going to have a beautiful Christmas lunch with, with family, and we're sitting at lunch, and I get a phone call. The alarm is going off in the building. The pipes, well, hopefully, thankfully, it's just one. A pipe burst, and so you see, if you're visiting with us this morning, our church isn't normally decorated so beautifully, um, but we have... We had water everywhere. I mean, there was standing water in the lobby. There was water ran down, looked like a pond down here in front of the, front of the, the, the pulpit. It was, it was crazy. It was amazing. Thankfully, Rob Manaki and his, his family had their capes on and had flown in as superheroes to get here early. And Matt Kinsey and, and got the water shut off. And then God connected us with a disaster restoration company. And we're thankfully recovering all this. But I, if you would have said, hey, what's going to happen for you on Christmas? I would not have said that. Right? I mean, how many of you have thought, this day has not turned out like I planned? This year has not turned out like I thought it would. That's not a complaint. It's a statement of expectation. If you don't expect it to turn out like you think it does, you're not going to be disappointed, right? How's tomorrow going to go? I have no idea. You'll never be disappointed. Solomon is just asking you to recognize your frail human condition and to say, you don't know what's going to happen this afternoon. You don't know what's going to happen this evening. The horse is prepared for the day of battle. That means that you have responsibility to plan and to work towards the future in wisdom, but you don't know what's going to happen. Proverbs chapter 6, go to the ant thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise without having any chief officer or ruler. She prepares her bread in summer and gathers her food in harvest. Get ready for the future. You don't know what's coming. So save, store, whatever that means in your family context. You need to look with wisdom for the future. It doesn't mean you're like, I don't know what's going to happen, so i got no plans, i got nothing. It just means that you need to recognize the frailty of your human condition. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but victory belongs to the Lord. We should be preparing what's coming for what's coming in the future. This is why we have savings accounts, insurance, calendars, all that types of thing. But we must hold that with a loose grasp, recognizing that only God is the one who is sovereign. Matthew chapter 6 is a wonderful passage for this. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Friends, anytime you find, anytime you find yourself with worry, 
fear, or anxiety for the future, you must remember that you are not God. I love that phrase. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know what that means? Listen, friend, don't worry about the troubles tomorrow. You've got enough trouble today. You don't need to fear about what's going to happen tomorrow because you're living right now. Anxiety and fear and wrapped up of what could be in the future is a wasted attempt at you being God. So recognize in wisdom your own frail human condition. Secondly, you need to recognize that you have no power over life or death. Verse 8, no man has power to retain the spirit. That means to keep yourself alive. And no man has power over the day of death. Friend, you will not be on this earth one minute more than God wants you to be. And you cannot be taken from this earth one minute before God's plan for you. You cannot give life to any inanimate object. You cannot sit down right now and give up your life. You can selfishly take your own life, but you can't give it. Life does not belong to you. Only God has the power to give the breath of life, and only God has the power to call someone into eternity. No human being has ever had the power to give life or give up life except one. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 18 Jesus says, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down on my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. Jesus possessed this power because he was truly God, truly man in every way. Friend, no one took Jesus' life from him. He gave it up on his own accord. God did not need some outside force outside of himself to raise Jesus from the dead. Jesus says, I have the power to take my life back up again. For only God has the power over life. Friend, if you're here and because of the throes of misery and depression, you have considered taking this issue into your own hands. Can I tell you, that's not your role. You can't give up your own life. Only God has the power to do that. Verse 9 helps us recognize that no matter how wicked the ruler, friend, listen to me, no evil dictator can affect your life unless God allows him to. Every martyr who gave their life for Christ and every martyr who is currently giving their life for Christ is not, has not having their life stolen from them by the devil. Because God is in control, even in the midst, especially in the midst, including the times of wicked oppression. Number three, how do we live in wisdom in times like these? Wisdom waits for final justice in heaven. Verses 10 through 17 is actually a really interesting 
interesting passage. Let's go down and start uh, reading verse 10. It's talking about the funeral of a wicked person. Verse 10 says this, Then I saw the wicked buried. They used to go in and out of the holy place and were praised in the city where they had done such things. This also is vanity. Because a sentence against an evil deed is not exalted speedily, the heart of the children of man is fully set to do evil. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times or prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God. Verses 10 and 11 set the stage for the funeral of a wicked person. You ever thought, what do you say at the funeral of someone who's a wicked person? I have was called on to do the funeral of someone who I knew or I perceived was unsaved. It's a very difficult situation. What do you say? Doing the funeral of a, of a Christian is never a joy, but often it can be a blessing in and of itself. To stand over the body of one who is spiritually in the presence of his Lord and one day the body and soul be joined together again, the resurrection, and to joyfully look towards that resurrection and to recount the ways in which this person reflected the character of Christ. To celebrate a life lived for God. You ever been to a funeral where you didn't really recognize the person they were talking about, although you knew the person the funeral was about? They were such a nice guy. And they were really like, no, they were not. <laughs> he loved his mama. No, he ran away at 12. Right? People can't help but say nice things at a funeral. It seems wrong to stand up and say, Johnny was a terrible, terrible person. You know? We're all glad he's gone. I don't know. And, and Solomon's pointing out one of the reasons why wickedness continues is that when you go to the funeral of a wicked person, they still lift them up as a hero. And, and there's something that cries out in your heart that that's wrong. And you wonder, will there ever be a time when that person will give an account for their sin? And Solomon's answer is yes, that justice is given in heaven. True justice for all of eternity. Verse 14 reveals the paradox of this broken world. There's a vanity that takes place on the earth, under the sun. That there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. There are innocent people in prison and there are guilty people walking free. That is the repercussion of living in a broken world. Robert Frost once said, a jury of your peers is 12 people chosen to decide who hired the better lawyer. Because the best justice system on earth still is flawed. It's the best we can do, but it's still flawed. You said, I could do better. No, you couldn't. No, you couldn't. Because you're flawed just like everyone else. And we must do our best to promote justice as good citizens in whatever way we are able to. But we must also recognize, wisdom recognizes, 
that we live in a culture that is broken in which final justice will never happen? How do we keep from becoming cynical in a world like this? Well, that's just the way the world is and becoming a crotchety and cynical person. You wonder why so many senior saints, of course, not in this congregation, but so many senior saints often approach life from a cynical point of view because they've seen the hardship of life. And friends, the way you keep from becoming cynical is you have a really big God. You recognize that final justice happens at God's throne. The conclusion that Solomon gives us in this chapter is that you can set your mind to try to understand this. You can do your best to come up with ways of why it's this way and not this way. Why it should be this way and not this way. If it was just this, then this would happen. You can set your mind to try to fix something that's broken. But who can make what God made crooked? Who can make that straight? What would be the result of you in your life doing your best to try to fix this broken world and dedicating your life to simply fixing this world? Look at verse 16. When I applied my heart to know wisdom and to see the business that is done on the earth, how neither day nor night do one's eyes see sleep, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find out. Friend, there's some things happening in your life that you are seeking an answer to why. And can I tell you that you may never know? One of the hardest questions that I face as a pastor is the, is the question of why. Gathering around the table after the death of, a, of an infant or a loved one or the collapse of a marriage, or the abuse because of some wickedness, the dear brother or sister's eyes is full of tears and all they want to know is why did this happen? Why did this happen? And friend, if you step in and you say, I know why, then you're one of Job's friends. Well, I know why God's brought this difficulty into your life because of this. Whoa, take a step back. You don't know why. I wish I did. So the answer that the only appropriate answer is to say, my dear brother or sister in Christ, I don't know why God has allowed this in your life. I don't know why you were born with this. or I don't know why you've been hurt in this way. I don't know why God has sought to call this person home in a time that you did not expect. I don't know. But God does. And one day, friend, when you are in his presence, you will know as well. And that's where Solomon is going with this. He's, he's going to say, in all of these things, there's a point. And the point is, is, is my last point, the fourth one here. Wisdom, living in, in, in a world like this, we must live 
with wisdom in fearing God above all. And that's found in verses 12 and 13. Look, look there with me. As, as wisdom literature often does, it places the, the, the point of the passage, the crux, right in the middle. It's built like an X, right? X marks a spot right in the middle. It's called a chiasm. And, and right in the middle, this is what Solomon says. Though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. But it will not be well with the wicked. Neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. What is that saying? It's saying that even though sometimes in this world, under the sun, there's a contradiction between what we see as though the righteous who are being oppressed and we think the righteous should be succeeding and the wicked who are succeeding and the wicked should be oppressed, that one day it will be just like that. That those who fear the Lord will spend eternity with him. Wisdom fears God above all else. Pastor Sean is leading us in a combined Sunday school class this January on, uh, on the fear of man. How do we conquer the fear of man? I mean, we all, we all care what others think about us, whether we admit it or not, right? We're all scared of other people's opinions. And, and how do we conquer that? How do we conquer the fear of the future? How do we conquer the fear of others? How do we conquer these fears in our lives? We conquer it with a greater fear. And that is the fear of the Lord. Proverbs says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the very center. What does it mean to fear the Lord? Well, fearing the Lord means, I'm going to give you six brief bullet points on what it means to fear the Lord. Okay. This is not all that it means to fear the Lord, but in my meditations this week on this passage, this is what I believe it would part of what it means for us today. Fearing the Lord, number one, means to value God above all else. That means that you value your relationship with God above your relationship with others. That you value God's plan above your plan. Secondly, fearing the Lord means having faith that God will fulfill his promises. No matter what I see happening around me, I know and I am convinced that God will win, that God will fulfill his promises, that if he says righteousness will win, righteousness will win, that in eternity if he says that he is the ultimate arbiter of justice, that I trust him for that, and I have faith and I believe what he says. Fearing the Lord means that we believe that suffering in this life for the cause of Christ will be rewarded in the next. Suffering for Christ in this life will be rewarded in the next. And you can flip that on its head and say living for Christ in this life will be rewarded in the next as well. That fearing the Lord says it will be worth it all when we see Jesus, as the old hymn says. Fourthly, fearing the Lord means that our life reflects the truth that we claim to believe. You don't believe something unless your life actually reflects it. 
the very definition of belief is living as if though it were true. Is, is that this faith in my heart, that if it's genuine, that my life will reflect what I believe to be true. And so fearing the Lord means that your life reflects the truth that you say that you believe. Fifthly, fearing the Lord means that we recognize that submitting to earthly authority in our life is submitting to God. I, I fear God enough, I love God enough to recognize that he put this boss in my life for my sanctification. And so therefore, I'm going to align under this authority because I'm aligning to God's authority. That's fearing God above all else. It's reflecting his character in our business dealings and working with honesty and justice, as we said before. The fear of God, keeping God first above all else, is woven all the way through this chapter. Meaning, lastly, that fearing the Lord means that we embrace our limits. Some of us live and operate in a sphere where you have a to-do list at your job, and when you clock out, you walk away, and many of you do not live in that type of sphere. My, my to-do list never ends, right? Some of us are like that. And, and if you find yourself in that scenario, where it's easy to take work home with you, where, where it's not really a punch-in and punch-out job description, let me encourage you to set your list and your responsibility aside and say, God, I have not completed this because I am not God. And tomorrow it will still be here. Because your limits remind you that you're not God. And fearing the Lord says, I have to live within my limits. What is the result of a person who lives a life fearing God and believing God? For the fourth time in eight chapters, Solomon repeats a phrase. Look down at verse 15. I commend joy, for man has Nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful. For this will go with him in his toil throughout the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. This is not a call to carefree hedonism. This is a call to recognize that you live a life of faith and that you are not God. And God has given you a few short days here on this earth. And when your God is so big that he can handle everything, you can have joy. My God has the future. My God has my health. My God has my family. And the horse is prepared for the day of battle and that I live in wisdom. And that's my responsibility. Wisdom and righteousness. But I don't have to bear the burden of what God has not called me to bear. So I step back and I let God be God. Because you really only have two options in this life. Either you are going to drive yourself mad trying to understand and control everything that God is doing around you. Or you're going to step back and you're going to trust and you're going to believe the truth. And you are going to grasp the hardest truth in all of life. 
there is a God and you are not him. Fear God. Trust him. Live for him in a life of wisdom here on this earth. Father, thank you so much for the truth of the scripture (coughs) it's given to us this morning. Thank you for this difficult chapter that in some ways is complex at first reading. Its nuances are difficult to interpret. And yet when we step back and we look at the big picture of what you are calling us to do through the book of Ecclesiastes, I pray that we would live in wisdom, align our hearts with understanding. May your word cause us to live lives that are cooperating with the Holy Spirit present inside of us. May we grow to love you more every single day. And may our hearts and lives be a reflection of your character. Friend, with your head bowed and your eyes closed, I'd like to just ask you to spend a brief moment reflecting on the truth that you've heard in silent response and reflection. Where is God's word Place his finger on your heart this morning. However the scripture has dealt with your heart and with your conscience, you do business with God in your seat appropriately.